So we are in a series titled The Demands of Discipleship. We're primarily in this series looking at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, those are the four books that account for the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They also contain his words. And they contain his words, his demands on what it means to be a disciple. And to be a disciple is to be a Christian. It's one who follows Jesus Christ. It's one who learns Jesus in order to live and love like him. And so in this series, we're looking at what does it mean for you, for I, for the church to follow Jesus? What does it mean for us to be a Christian? And so some of the things that we've already looked at is that we're called to be born again. We looked at that a couple weeks ago, that when we believe in Jesus, we're actually given new life. Uh, we saw a couple weeks ago, Chris preached from Luke chapter 6, that we're to love our enemies. Jesus has loved us when we were his enemies, so that we would be saved and thus we would love others Thus, continuing to show others the very love of Christ. We're told to abide in Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at how a vine or a branches are connected to the vine. They're dependent upon the life of the vine. And so you and I as disciples are to be dependent upon Jesus Christ at every moment of the day. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the fact that we're called to make war on pride by willingly and humbly serving one another. Now, uh, I think Chris did a good job uh, prefacing his text a couple weeks ago. He said uh, that the text itself is not hard. In fact, everyone will understand the text to love your enemies. Everyone will understand the text today that we are to humbly and willingly serve one another. The difficulty lies in the living it out. Will we trust in God's grace to strengthen us that we would make war on our pride and we would humbly serve others as our Lord and Savior has served us. And so in Matthew 23, what Jesus is going to do, he's going to present two different kingdoms. In the first part, he's going to describe the kingdom of this world. And he's going to show that it is characterized by pride. And one thing we can see is that pride is the root of all sin. It's, uh, it goes from cover to cover in the Bible. It's the selfish desire that longs for glory, longs for honor, longs for respect. It is because of pride that Satan rebelled against God. It is because of pride that Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And it is because of pride that every single one of us has rebelled against God. So that's where Jesus is going to start showing how the kingdom of the world is characterized by pride. And then he's going to switch. And in the second half, he's going to show, but the kingdom of God, those who are citizens of God's kingdom, those who are disciples, those who are Christians, he says, are characterized by humility and service. We're not consumed with seeking our glory and honor, but rather we happily place ourselves in service to others because we love God's glory more than our own. So that's where we're going to be today. Uh, so what I want to do is go ahead and read Matthew 23. And so if you will, go ahead and stand with us. We're going to read Matthew 23, 1 through 12. The reason we stand is a means of reminding us that Jesus is our King, and this is His Word that has come to us, inspired by the Spirit, for the purpose of equipping us and teaching us how to live. So it's a means of worshiping and just honoring our King. So here we go, Matthew 23, verse 1. 
Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe what they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with, it, with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue, and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. And you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Let us pray this morning. Our Father, Father, we come to you now and we praise you for this text. And Lord, I thank you for the straightforward message of it, that we can all understand it. Lord, I pray that you pour forth your spirit on us today. Convict us of pride. Show us where we boast in our own glory. Bring us to repentance. Remind us of the truth of the gospel that Jesus came in humility and served us. And because your spirit is in us, we now live like your son Jesus. We humbly serve others. May we see the joy and that as we serve others, we are showing the world the love of Jesus. God, be glorified today. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, so I want to begin with just showing uh, and pointing out there's a warning here that a pride appears with religious people. Now, that might not be new to you, but it's good to be reminded that pride can appear in very religious people. We, we cannot think that pride is only for atheists, agnostics, and those outside Christianity. Because here in our text, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and to, his, and to, his, and to the crowds about the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, the scribes and Pharisees were the religious rulers of the day. And what we see is they sit on the seat of Moses. Now, in the Old Testament, Moses was the lawgiver. He was the supreme teacher and instructor of God's people. And so to sit on the seat of Moses was to represent the supreme position in the first century of teaching God's people God's word. And so that is where these Pharisees and scribes are sitting. And so if Jesus was preaching this today, if he was giving us this warning today, he would say, beware of pride in the pew and also in the pulpit. That's where he would be directing this to. He'd be looking out here in the chairs, but also right up here and anyone who stands teaching God's word. And so when we come to a text where Jesus is rebuking and correcting religious leaders, we just all need to pause for examination. And the first thing we need to do is just, we need to ask, where is there pride in my heart? And so I want to ask you, as we walk through this text, to be asking that question, where is there pride? Expose any pride that is within me. And secondly, we need to realize that pride can be within the leaders of the church. There is no one who is immune to sin. 
In fact, if you remember in the book of Galatians, Paul rebukes Peter because he was beginning to, uh, to walk away from the truth of the gospel and he was looking more to the approval of man than the approval of God. And it's because, of, because sin is blinding, we need one another. That's one reason we actually have a plurality of elders here at the church. We don't just have one elder. It's not just me. It's not just Chris. It's not just Rich. But together, we, we form the elders because then we can look and correct and examine one another on a regular basis. But I also want to encourage you as members of the church that if you see in me or any of our elders, or any leader here within the church, the roots of pride beginning to develop, I want to invite you just to come and, and offer that correction. We want to, we want to make sure that, that we're always being aware of where there is sin growing in our heart. And so we want to ask you to do that for us as elders, as we all seek to help one another to grow in our love for Christ. Also, one additional thing, as we're looking at this text, and we're being reminded that there is pride within the church at times. There are many of you who are military, and there are many of you who within weeks or, or a year or four years, you're going to be leaving us at some point, and you're going to be looking for another church. And I just want to encourage you to prayerfully discern the leading of the Spirit, what that church would be. Don't trust in sizes. Don't trust in the size of the church. Don't trust in the appearance of the church. Don't trust in the programs of the church. But prayerfully discern where God would lead you. Because what we have here, we have a warning that there can be pride within the church. There can be pride within the leadership of the church. There can be pride within the, the pews of the church. And so, uh, as we're coming to this, Again, I just want to say, all of us, me, you, all of us, just God, expose, reveal any pride in our hearts. And I would say this, when we come to a text where Jesus is pointing out the danger of pride, there ought to be some level of conviction in us. So if you walk out of here and you're like, man, that totally doesn't apply to me, just take that as your evidence that you have pride in your heart, Okay? So at some level, we all ought to be corrected at this. And that's nothing we need to fear. In fact, if, you, if we go back to the beginning of Matthew and the Beatitudes, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn. Do you remember? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be what? Do you remember? Comforted. So Jesus is saying, as you weep over your sin, or you, as you repent over your sin, there's comfort. Jesus isn't waiting with a stick gives grace. In fact, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to what? To forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, where we have a warning of pride, we also have an invitation of grace. So Jesus is giving a warning of pride as also a means of having an invitation of grace right now. So let us, let's be invited to examine ourselves, knowing that if there is anything in our hearts, our Father is graciously and willingly to forgive us as we repent. So let's go ahead and jump in. What is pride? 
Now, I'm sure like we could come up with many, many variations uh, of, a, of a definition here, and they'd probably all be very similar, and so I'm going to give one, but knowingly that we could probably say this in multitude of ways, but pride boasts in one's own glory. Pride boasts in one's own glory. Jeremiah 9.23 says this, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches. You see, those who are prideful, they see themselves as the source of their success. They see the reason I'm here today, the reason I'm on the stage, the reason I have what I have, the reason I am where I am is because of me. But... We also have to realize that pride is not only for the strong and the successful. Pride also reveals itself in the weak. And this is where often we would say, oh, I'm not prideful. And so I want you to, I want you to hear a quote from John Piper. He wrote this in a book called Future Grace, actually on a title, uh, on a chapter about pride. And he says, boasting is the response of pride to success. We all get that, right? Boasting is the response of pride to success. Self-pity is the response of pride to suffering. Boasting says, I deserve admiration because I've achieved so much. Look at what I've done, therefore admire me. Self-pity says, I deserve admiration because I've sacrificed and suffered so much. Let me, let me give an example of self-pity. I don't think I need to give an example of boasting in our in our pride of success. I think we can get that one pretty easy, but um, here is an example from my own life where I can see the, the boasting of pride and weakness in self-pity. Um, so there was another church that I was serving at, and I remember while I was serving there, there was a lot of difficulties at that church. There was a lot of heartaches I was going through. There was a lot of pains I was going through. So I'd meet with other pastors, and I would talk to them. I'd explain the difficulties. I'd explain the problems. I'd explain the hardships that I was going through. And what I was wanting them to do, I wanted them to recognize my suffering. I wanted them to recognize the difficulty of my job. And I was, politely to say it, I was very angry. Just to say it that way. When they would say things like, oh, I've been there. Oh, I know what you're talking about. I would, I, I would get so furious when they would say that. I was like, no, no, you don't understand. I felt like I, I just miscommunicated. Let me really tell you my pain. Let me tell you how my church and my problems are so much bigger than yours and everyone else's. You don't understand. What I wanted was my pain to be validated. I wanted admiration and respect for the suffering that I was going through. And so let me just give a hint. If you ever say the words, you don't understand my pain, then you have the boasting and the pride of self-pity. So that's how that would begin to manifest itself in you. So what Jesus is going to do is he's going to give us three questions that we can ask to see, is there pride growing in our life? And so that's what we're going to walk through in our text. Number one, the first question is, do you practice what you preach? Look at verse three. Jesus, 
He says, um, or let's start in verse 2. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe what they tell you, but not what they do. for For they preach, but do not practice. So Jesus is saying, it's okay to obey their teachings, but don't emulate their works. Don't do what they do. Now just real quick. Jesus is not giving a blank check to obedience to the Pharisees' teachings. In fact, if you read on in Matthew 23, he will give them a scathing rebuke of their teachings. But what we ought to understand is that they are saying some right things. But Jesus' point here is that their actions do not align with their words. You see, the Pharisees, they know that they could summarize the law by love God, love people. They know They know that answer. And yet all throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see them failing to love God. We see them failing to love people. They know the word, but they don't live it out. In fact, many of you might then just kind of remember that text from James, the brother of Jesus. In James chapter 1, verse 22, James says says this, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. He says, if all you do is know the word, but you don't do the word, you deceive yourself. You're not truly a disciple of Jesus. Disciples are those who not only talk about love, but also truly love others. Disciples are those who not only read their Bibles, but they live out the commands of Scripture. Jesus' point is that Christianity, it's not a name badge. It's not just something we wear but it's a lifestyle that we live in obedience to our king. So that's question number one. Do you practice what you preach? Number two, do you fail to come alongside others and serve them in love? So here we have the Pharisees in verse four. Jesus says, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. What we have is the Pharisees we're great at pointing out the failures and shortcomings of others. Are you good at seeing the faults in others? Like, I'm really good at that. Like, I, I am. I just have this knack for an ability to see the sins in others. Do you have that ability? Like, I think we're all aware. Like, we're really good at seeing other people's faults, right? And so what the Pharisees and scribes did, they had this oral law. Uh, basically, it was rules that they were making up so that they would live a righteous life. They wanted to make sure they never sinned, so they created all these rules and more rules and more rules. And then uh, think of of a donkey and putting a heavy load on a donkey. That's what these rules were like to all the people that they had put them on. They're just putting this heavy load, and just as when a donkey would, would pause or would be stubborn or would trip in its step, and the person, uh, the owner, would beat the donkey. So that's what the Pharisees would do to the people. They overloaded them with the oral law. They put all these rules and regulations, these burdens on them. And when they failed, they were right there to point out, oh, you failed again, you failed again. And they beat them verbally with their words. They wouldn't move a single finger to help them. They weren't willing to sacrifice their time. They weren't willing to come alongside and love them. But they were willing to point out their fault. They sat back in their ivory towers pointing out the problems in the church, but they never came alongside in love to help and serve anyone. And so, as we look at this one, I just want to bring this question to us. Who are you serving? I just want you to think about that. How 
have you served and encouraged someone in the church this last week? The last two weeks. Who have you served outside the church? Just, just think about that. Now, I realize that at a time like this where there's more social distancing and quarantine, an answer may be, well, I'm quarantined. So scripture's not, a, not applicable at that moment then. That's what we'd be saying. And that's what a lot of people say in this period of time. The scripture gets on hold. And so how do we live it out? Now, we might live it out differently, but how do we love those how are we coming alongside those interests? How is it when we see someone who's hurting, when we see someone who stumbles in their faith, how do we come alongside them and pick them up? How do we love them? How do we serve them? Number three, the last question. Do you want the stage? Look at verse five. Jesus says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. Now, we're getting kind of to the crux of the matter here. This is the heart of their sin. They want the stage. They want to be recognized. They want to be patted on the back. They want to make sure people see them and respect them. They want their glory. They're the ones who, every time you see them, they tell you the good things that they're doing. They're constantly talking about themselves. They're constantly reminding you of their greatness and indispensability. Right now, you all have these people in your head, right? So remember, we first come and we're examining our own hearts at this moment. So just, just let me ask you, where do you want the stage? Where do you want, where do you desire, where do you demand the approval of others? So, uh, as this is the, apparently the day that I'm giving out my own life, so I'll give you one more illustration from my life. Um, this one was recent. Uh, this was a recent one that I, I saw how pride was beginning to creep into my life. Uh, I've added four words to the ends of certain sentences that I use. And these are the words, since I've been here. So let me, let me explain the sentence that I use and how those words add on to it. Um, our annual meetings have been really good since I've been here. We've met and exceeded our budget every year since I've been here. Now, in one sense, and I, I can easily justify, I am trying to just speak from my perspective of the church. And I think that there is, to some degree, that's the desire in those four words. But this last week, there was just this conviction. I had used them. And all of a sudden, and I get, because of this text, that God just pressed on and said, that's not your only reason. You actually have another reason why you add those four words on to the ends of those sentences. You want people to see the trajectory of where they're at. You want people to see the accomplishments. You want people to see what you've achieved. You want glory and admiration. And I didn't even see that coming. And as I began to wrestle with that, I could see that in my own heart. And so for that I do. I come to you and I ask for your forgiveness on that. Because I have added those words. And I think that's often what pride will do. We'll use things that we in one sense can justify why we do it. But as we begin to hold up our lives to Christ and say, is there any sin? Show if there's anything wicked in me. And he begins to press in on our life. And things that we thought we were doing for pure motives, 
often are revealed as not so pure after all. And that's what happens in my life many times, and I'm venturing to say that's what happens in your life as well. The sin of pride appears in the pew and the pulpit. We must constantly be on guard against it. In fact, in our text, we're given at least three ways that the, that the Pharisees and the scribes displayed their righteousness, wanted to be seen. And we'll just kind of walk through them quickly. Uh, number one, the phylacteries and tassels. And I know that all of you guys know exactly what phylacteries and tassels are, right? Um, so phylacteries and tassels are commands in the, old, in the Old Testament that God's people were to obey as a means of remembering the commands of God, remembering who they were. And so phylacteries were small leather pouches that they'd either wear on their foreheads or on their arm that contained scripture just simply as a visible means of reminding who we are as God's people. Tassels were these long, uh, were, were sewn onto the edges of the clothing as a means of reminding us visually, as I look at you, as you look at me, we're God's people. We act and live in a different way. But what we see here is that sin loves to twist good practices for evil purposes, right? Sin loves to twist good practices for evil practices. So the Pharisees now, they're wearing really big leather pouches. Would have loved to have known what that looked like. Like my wife was like already like looking, "Eh, you know, that doesn't really work, you know. How would she like it if I began wearing big like leather bags on my head, you know? Um, and they wore these long tassels, really big, extra long tassels, as if just to say, hey, just, just look at me. You want to know what righteousness looks like? I wear righteousness. And so that's what they did. This is like the person who wears Christian shirts all the time, carries gigantic Christian um, Bibles, drinks Christian coffee mugs, and when you walk in to their house, it's like a Christian bookstore blew up. Have you ever been in one of those houses? And you're just like, everything is Jesus in here. Now, is that just because they really love Jesus, or is there another motive? I would venture to say there's probably another motive in that. You will see my righteousness by just the things that I own and the things that I have. It's okay to have a Christian coffee mug. Don't throw it away, maybe. Um, now, I really want to keep going on that because you know where I'll go on that, but I'm not going to. Uh, verse 6 and 7, we also see they want the best seats, the best greetings. Uh, they were called rabbis. Now, rabbi is like this supreme teacher reserved for the elite. Not just everyone's a rabbi, and every disciple's goal is to be a rabbi, is to have that position. And so when it talks about them wanting these elaborate greetings, they want to be in the marketplace and someone to say, Rabbi, that's you. And bow down before them to honor them, to make sure everyone around them knows, yes, I am a rabbi. You are not. That's the point there. Greet me in public, please, and make sure to use big pompous titles when you do so. So everyone within ears, ears something. What is that? Ears? Earshot. I was like, man, there's a word that goes on at earshot. We'll be able to know exactly who I am. That's what they were doing here. And so, before we move on, just a couple questions. Where do you want to be recognized? 
And and this is what I would say, think through this. Don't just be like, oh, I don't know. I don't really want to be recognized. Again, just remember, you can have good practices, but, but sin might be twisting those for evil purposes. Men, when you come home, do you want your family to bow down to your every wish? Do you come home and you go, I have worked hard. I've done everything that I'm supposed to. Y'all ought to just, you know, make my life easy right now. Or wives, when your husband comes home, you say, hey, it's your turn. Take over. I've done everything. I've kept them alive. And, you know, you make your list also. Recognize my glory and now serve because I, I deserve it. Are you upset if your service and acts are not celebrated by others? Are you okay with just serving and no one knowing? Are you okay with coming into the church, setting up all the chairs, picking up all the trash, cleaning the bathrooms, and no one ever knows that you do that? Are you okay at home starting the dishwasher, men, without telling your wife you started the dishwasher? I always feel like I need to, like, honey, just so you know, I dried the dishes and put them all up today. Just a little, you know, just dropping that out there. Are we okay with just our acts not being recognized? And, and like, it's, it's silly, but man, when you start getting down to it, it's scary how many ways we want all of our little acts to be recognized by others. And when they're not, how angry we get because we deserve that recognition. Okay. So Jesus has pointed out the sin here. And, and I hope you begin to see what a miserable life pride leads to. You see, pride is nothing more than slavery to others. Look at the Pharisees and scribes, the way that they're described. They're not free. They have no peace. They have no joy. Their souls are restless. They don't love others. They're constantly trying to outdo one another in order to gain the approval of man. They're doing everything they can to please man, to have the approval of man. C.S. Lewis, in his book titled Mere Christianity, he also wrote a book on, a chapter on pride. And he says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something. You get that? Pride has no pleasure in having something only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich, clever, or good looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there'd be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. You see, the reason we deserve glory and honor is because I'm looking at all of you, and I see what you do, and I see what I do, and I do more. That's where the Pharisees are. That's where the scribes are. And that's where often we are in our homes, in our workplaces, in the church, when we begin demanding other people to serve and to honor us because of the things that we have done. Okay, let's, let's look now. Jesus is now going to present a different kingdom. He's going to show us what it looks like to be a citizen of God's kingdom. In verses 8, 9, and 10, Jesus basically just says, what you don't need to be called. And he says, you don't need to be called a rabbi, you don't need to be called a father, and you don't need to be called an instructor. Now, real quick, Jesus is not saying there are not teachers within the church. Jesus is not saying there's not levels of authority within the church, the home, or society. Nor is Jesus saying that we're not to call our dads fathers. 
I mean, after all, Paul called himself Timothy's father. Paul also called himself the Corinthians' father. So most likely, father is probably referring to the, to the revered position of the patriarchs in the Old Testament and desiring to have that type of position today. But what Jesus is telling us, Jesus is telling us not to strive for titles of honor. He's not, he's not saying don't look for advancement. He's not saying don't get promotions, but he's not, don't strive for the title. Why? Because in verse 8, Jesus says, because I am your rabbi. In verse 9, because God is your father. In verse 10, because Jesus is our instructor. Jesus is calling us to be satisfied in God's glory rather than our own. That's what he's doing here. He said, don't look for these worldly positions. Don't look for these worldly titles. Be satisfied that God has all the glory, that God has all the glorious titles. He is the one true, perfect father and teacher and instructor. Next, he says, disciples are to be satisfied with God having all glory and honor. That's what he's telling us. Don't strive for the titles. Be satisfied that God has all glory and honor. You know, we see this all throughout Scripture, that God is worthy of all glory and honor and praise because of, because of creation, because everything that exists is, exists because he has called it into being. He's also worthy of all glory and honor because he's the one who provides redemption. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross so we could be forgiven. We see that when Adam and Eve sin, rather than just kind of crumpling up all creation and throwing it away and saying, well, I'm just going to start over, he says, I'm going to redeem mankind. And the, re- the way that he does that is through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. In fact, this last week in the youth room, one of the students asked, and this is a question that many of us have asked, why did God let there be sin? Like, right? Like, our, our kids make some awesome questions. Why is it that God, like, like, if he wants the people to worship him, why didn't he just make us to worship him? And automatically, some of the answers went, well, because of free will and all this other kind of stuff, which are, you know, good ideas, but not necessarily what we see in Scripture. So we went and just looked at one Scripture in Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul talks about how God, before creation, chose and predestined a people to be saved through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. You see, God has always desired in creation that he would be glorified through the death and resurrection of his son. Because at the cross, Jesus displays his love, displays his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his justice, his goodness, his wrath, his love, his 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 anger. And we could just keep going on. At the cross, God displays his love and his mercy and all that he is, his glory through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so as disciples, as those who have been saved by Jesus, we're saying we want God to have all glory. We realize that we're sinners destined for wrath. The only reason we're saved is because of God's glory. In fact, to boast in ourselves is like the moon boasting in its own light. Why is it that the moon shines? Only because of the, the, the rays of the sun. And the only reason you and I are alive, the only reason you and I are breathing at this moment, and the only reason you and I have entered into the kingdom of God is by the very grace of God. It has nothing to do with our works. Amen. So Jesus is saying, be satisfied that God has all glory. 
Stephen Sharnock, I thought he was a Puritan, he said this, a proud faith is as much a contradiction as a humble devil. I just thought that was good. I was like, man, I just like that. I just had to fit it in somewhere. A proud faith is as much a contradiction as a humble devil. As, as disciples, what we keep saying is what John the Baptist kept saying. I must decrease and he must increase. We just keep wanting God to have all the glory. Number two, disciples rejoice at the unity of the church. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 is interesting. Jesus said, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. So like part of the reason that we don't, that, that we are not to be called rabbis, that we don't look for these titles of honor is because we're all brothers. And he's just using that so men, women, we're all brothers and sisters. We're all family. Now, how does that get used for why we don't need to pursue our own honor? I think there's many ways that we can answer that. But what we see in Scripture is that there's no inferior or superior in the family of God. Do you realize that? There's no rank among us here. There might be a different level of authority, in a sense, just as there is in a home. But there's no different rank among us. There's no different levels of being and personhood here. Galatians 3.28 says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is no male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. The blood of Christ saves the rich and the poor. The blood of Christ saves the black and the white. The blood of Christ saves the man and the woman. None of us are here because of anything in and of ourselves. It's only by God's grace. And so God is saying, Jesus is saying that, when you've been saved, you've been saved that you would become part of the family of God. You together would share an image forth God. And there is no inferior or superior. Do you see how countercultural this is to the world right now? When there's so much division in the world on haves and have-nots, black and white, rich and poor, and yet Jesus is saying, oh no. We're just, we're just one body here. We're all equal. This is why we love one another. This is why we serve one another. This is why we share all that we have among one another. Jesus also calls us to happily serve others as Jesus has served us. If you look at verse 10, Jesus tells us what greatness is. He says, greatness is to serve others. To be great is to serve. And we've already looked at the, the way the world defines greatness is through power, might, and accomplishments. And if that's your goal, then you're always needing to be pursuing power, might, and accomplishments because once you have it, it's like holding on to a shadow, right? It's going to be gone. And you need to work harder to keep gaining more and more and more. But what we see within the kingdom of God, within disciples, that we're called to serve one another. Let me just give you two reasons why. We serve because Christ has served us and has given us everything. Do you realize that as believers, we have everything? Like in Romans 8, 17, the God, uh, Paul writes, and he says, because of the gospel, we're all heirs and co-heirs with Jesus. Do you realize that everything Jesus has, he shares with you? In Revelation 3, 21, he says, you will sit with me on the throne with me and the Father ruling over all the creation. Everything Christ has, he shares with us. 
when we're saved. He holds nothing back. So why can we serve one another? Because we literally have everything. We're not fighting for more power. We're not fighting for more possessions. We're not fighting for more prestige because in Christ, we share everything with him. And number two, we serve because Christ has served us. He came to die on a cross. And it's through his death, his humility, and his resurrection that we're saved. So when we take the posture of a servant, who are we living like? Jesus. And just as Jesus provided the gospel, saves us through serving, through humility, so now we have the opportunity to display that same love to others as we serve them and we put their needs before our own. If we're going to see the kingdom advance, it's going to be as we serve one another. If the gospel came through Christ loving and serving, it will advance through the church loving and serving one another. Let me just give one last thing. One last thing. Um, I know when we start talking about about serving and humility, it feels like we're learning a foreign language at times. Like it's hard. We make excuses. Do you ever, do you ever make excuses? Like why? Uh, well, I'm busy. I didn't have time to serve this week. I wasn't a part of the church this week. We make excuses for why we sin. And right now in our, in our staff meeting, we're, uh, we're reading a book called You Can Change by Tim Chester, which I just recommend you all go buy and read. It's a really good book. But he gives an illustration of sanctification. And he gives the illustration. Now, sanctification is just becoming more like Jesus. It's, it's serving like Jesus said. It's becoming humble. Becoming more like Christ. And this is how he describes sanctification. He says, I used to think of sanctification a bit like pushing a boulder up a hill. It was hard, slow work. And if you lost concentration, you might find yourself back at the bottom. So just think about that. Is that how we think of humility? Pursuing humility is like pushing a boulder up a hill. It's just hard. I feel like at any moment I'm just going to let the boulder go and we're going to roll back down to the hill. But he says this, but it's more like a boulder rolling down a hill. There's something inevitable about it because it's God's work and God always succeeds. The sad thing is I often try to push the boulder back up the hill. You see, what he's doing is he's, he's just simply fleshing out Philippians 1.6. Where Paul, where, where Paul writes that God began a good work in us and he promises that he will complete it. Look, if you're saved and you believe in Jesus Christ, then Jesus is saying, I saved you that you'd become more like me. I saved you so that you will become humble and serve others. And I guarantee that work will be accomplished, is what Jesus is saying. And so it is like that, boulders rolling down the hill. And what we do is we so often try to hold it back. We so often offer up our means and our reasons of why we're not growing like Christ, why we're not able to be in the Word, why we're not able to serve others. We're resisting God's grace. And so what Paul, or what Jesus is doing here, is he's reminding us the way of the kingdom, and he's calling us to trust in Jesus to get out from in front of the boulder and trying to hold it back, but continue to just ask God to do a work in our hearts, reveal any sin, reveal any pride that we would serve one another. And so I pray that that's your prayer today.
pray that's your prayer because we're given the promise those who those who are exalted now will be humble if we are humble now and follow christ we look forward to the day where we'll be exalted with him for all of eternity let's pray and we'll take communion father we come to you